Hello, and welcome to the Eclectic Vanguard. With me, Michael Brown. This is, of course, Radiolab 97.1 FM. Hello, guys. Welcome to the show today. Uh, and I'm sorry I wasn't here last week. It was just because things were a bit hectic. And honestly, I was almost... Um, not here this week in that uh, I had some issues with, and I don't mind saying this because I think that uh, mental health issues are a thing which should be normalized. I had some uh, health anxiety issues, which uh, I'm not entirely out of, out of the woods regarding yet, but I hope that um, if you're listening, then you uh, are doing well yourself. Uh, of course, I hope that I am in fact doing uh, well and that what I'm worried about is not an issue, as I'm, I'm sure it is, and I've seen plenty of clinics, and I've noticed that they are all uh, health professionals, and I've noticed that when you have um, health anxiety, every single uh, health professional you meet ends up getting roped into the job of also being your uh, discount therapist, which is um, nice. So overall, I mean, uh, um, I think... It's it's good, and I just might be a bit more uh, low energy today, I, I'm afraid, because it is something that is still uh, playing on my mind a bit, uh, but it's something where I'm, I'm hoping that as time goes on, I will be uh, significantly less worried about it, even as um, the symptoms remain a while, because uh, usually with my health anxiety, it's, it's about things where the symptoms go away nice and... Uh, well, soon. Whereas in this case, I think the symptoms are likely to be around for a little while, and I'm hoping that I'm not uh, overly anxious for as long as the the symptoms are around. And within by by next week's show or, or the week after that, hopefully this will be a well a memory that will feel uh, quite distant. And I will say, when you have health anxiety, you realize how long a day can be, uh, because you know it's it's a matter of you you can't just. Uh, well, when you've got to take it day by day and you're nervous about something, it's it's very difficult. Uh, let's actually talk about the show, though. So today we are going to be talking to just just the one person, uh, Nina Pally, who is a anti-copyright activist. Uh, she is also a, a content producer herself. She's an animator and an artist. Uh, and yet she believes that uh, copyright shouldn't exist. Um, she has some very interesting reasons for this uh, position and i think that you know they're, they're quite exciting to to share with you so that's going to be the the entirety of uh the chat today unfortunately there's just uh not that much else uh, going on it's it's been a bit difficult to uh get interviews i, I do have a, a long i mean an interview already arranged which i should have already done by the time that this goes up but uh, that will be for next week's show uh so I won't. I won't give you any spoilers for that. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that said, I uh, I feel that I should be padding a bit more because the interview isn't overly long. But I will leave you with uh, Nina Pally just just for a bit, uh, and then perhaps we'll do a little uh, break in the middle. So without further ado, here is uh, Nina Pally talking about her issues with copyright. Hello, we're joined by Nina Paley, uh, an artist and advocate against copyright. Thank you for joining us, Nina. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, very good to have you. Um, so I, I guess the 
easiest place to start would actually be what is it that because you are kind of a, a content producer uh so what is it that you you mostly do Oh, uh, I do a lot of animation. I've made two mm. animated feature films, Sita Sings the Blues and Seder Masochism. I also make shorts. I also do illustration, cartooning, writing. Yeah, mm. but I'm best known yeah. for my animation. And I do shorts as well as features. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, and obviously you, you have this uh, objection to copyright. Is that an objection to the entire idea of copyright itself? Yes, I object to the entire idea of copyright itself. Okay, um, so obviously the, the, well, I suppose the first question would be, what is it that you think is, is bad about copyright? Well, copyright is an artificial monopoly, and it attempts to treat culture as a rivalrous good it attempts to treat culture as property and culture fundamentally is not property. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, when you say culture as, as property, uh, obviously this, this isn't a cultural appropriation thing, is it? You're not talking about, um, kind of the English culture or, or French culture. You're talking about kind of culture in a more wider cosmopolitan sense. Yes. Okay. Any sort of art, writing, music, words, culture. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, and I might be unclear on this, uh, what is the, so you're opposed to copyright, does that include uh, patents and things where um, somebody has, you know, uh, worked scientifically to produce a uh, particular method or something which they, they choose to patent? Are you opposed to that as well? Well, uh, patents and copyrights and trademarks are all referred to as intellectual property. Yes. So it has that word property in it, and intellectual property is not property. Of those three, trademark is the least objectionable. It's yeah. abused, but uh, copy copyright is what I am most familiar with, and patents I'm no fan of, but since that's not my field... I'm not as outspoken against patents. Okay, yeah. So I mean, it's it's interesting, obviously, because you are somebody who who produces content. So why is it that you don't feel any uh, desire to you know protect your content from being uh, copied uh, by other people? Well, my content increases in value the more it's copied. In fact, that's true of all cultural works. That's one of the reasons cultural works are not property. Culture is inherently anti-rivalrous and property is inherently rivalrous. Mm. So they're not the same thing and they don't follow the same laws. Okay. Uh, actually, I, I'm interested. Do, do you also believe that uh, piracy of uh, forms of intellectual property is... Uh, always acceptable, uh, something that should not be objected to. So, you know, copying and downloading uh, movies and, and music. Yeah, well, that very phrase, piracy, can only exist in a copyright regime. Yeah. So what you mean by piracy, I assume, is unauthorized copying. Yes. And since uh, since culture isn't property and there's no appropriate authorization for copying it, then... Of course, I'm going to have no objection to what's called piracy. Okay. I have an objection to even thinking of it as piracy. But is it not true that, uh, to say nothing of the kind of creative labor, 
uh, with films, uh, you know, blockbuster films, they can cost millions of dollars to produce. So is it not therefore, or does it not therefore make sense that seeing as this is, is property that's been produced through somebody investing their own uh, money into it, that it should cost people some amount of money to uh, access that content? Well, there's a lot in what you just said that I could pick apart. First okay. is you're calling it property. It's certainly something that's been produced by a bunch of people, but just because it's been produced doesn't mean that it's property. As for how cultural works get money, it's very rarely through copyright. Most of these films are financed in advance and most films don't make money. The vast majority of films don't make money. So where does the money come from? Uh, well, I mean, I assume the money comes from uh, audiences watching it uh, uh, at the cinema. No. Or buying on DVD. Okay. No, that's not where mo most films are paid for, right? All the actors are paid. It's not like the actors don't get money until yeah. oh, revenues yeah, yeah. come in from the film. In yeah. Europe, a lot of films are... Uh, government subsidized so it's actually yeah. taxpayers that are paying for these films and then they have to pay for them again they yeah, have to pay okay. for them twice not only have the taxpayers paid for the film but but the product of that labor does not belong to the taxpayer it, it's put into private hands so you have these basically publicly funded movies that are then controlled by private enterprises and the people that actually funded those films are barred from seeing the films that they technically already paid for unless they pay again for every single copy every single time they watch them. Okay. Um, what do you think about the, the idea that, say, somebody has uh, researched a, a book? Let's say they've spent, you know, more than a year perhaps sometimes uh, you know, learning, familiarizing themselves with a particular concept. And then, of course, they spend the effort uh, and time to produce the book, uh, which obviously includes, you know, plenty of, of work, uh, that they would then, well, first of all, not like the idea of that stuff being accessed for free by by anybody without, you know, them getting any money out of it. Well, but hang also, on a second. Hang on a second. I'm not sure that's true. Many people write books because they actually have a message that they want to get out. It, is it not true that there are perhaps some books which, and I suppose you could say also some forms of uh, other, you know, so-called intellectual property, where it's not produced because of um, necessarily the person who's doing it wants to do it exactly, but rather because uh, it, you know, it is something which people want, that there is a market for, and that it's not illegitimate for the person, you know, producing that work to do so with a desire to, um, to profit off it. Oh, it's not remotely illegitimate to want to make a living from doing that work. No, okay. it's not rem and, and I'm not remotely opposed to monetizing work to monetizing cultural work. There's all kinds of ways you can monetize books and music and so on uh, without using copyright. In fact, most of the ways that they are monetized don't rely on copyright. 
I'm in favor of money, and I'm certainly in favor of artists and creators getting money. Okay, so I'm, I'm a bit confused. How is it? How can it be the case that uh, somebody can make money off of a work they've produced? Um, you know, what what are some examples of how someone can make money off of work they've produced without having a kind of barrier that says you can't access this this work unless you've paid money? That is a great question. So all we have to do is look at how most artists make money already. Most of it comes from commissions. Most okay. of the time, it's you get the money in advance to make a work. And that's yeah. where the money comes from. Because, you know, in film and, and other industries, back end is, is a joke. Back end means revenues from copyrights. And these okay. contracts have you know, all this stuff about how you're going to share these revenues and those revenues never come in. It's so rare that they ever come in, but everybody gets paid. They get paid on the front end. And that's, that's moral. That's correct. I mean, when I made Sita Sings the Blues, I paid all my contributors on the front mm. end. I raised the money and I paid the contributors. Is it, I suppose, is there not a risk that this could kind of result in a, you know, that perhaps there's a, a moral criticism that this allows for certain people to uh, basically be selfish. You know, in other words, there will be some people who will uh, actually go out and, you know, if you're raising money, they'll, they'll be happy to fund it out of the goodness of their hearts. They'll be happy to kind of present some money. But there's going to be other people who are going to sit back and just enjoy the content being produced and, uh cynically think well i don't have to give any money to this and that perhaps this system might unfairly reward people who have a more cynical selfish attitude <laughs> well this is how the world works i mean mm. every there's all kinds of art that's made that you and i don't like and you know we don't have any responsibility to fund that art just because you make something doesn't mean people have to like it it mm. doesn't mean people have to even pay attention to it okay like, yeah, of course. And I mean, if that if that were the case, if that were the rule, then every time you or I did anything, we would be entitled to be paid for it. And that's just mm. silly. People do all kinds of things that just nobody wants. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I guess also there's the other aspect of this, not just the consumer end, but the production end. Um, do you think that, you know, there, there's an extent to which because uh, my understanding of copyright is that one reason it exists is because if if you as an author or you know a content producer have created a, a universe or, or a character and you know th there was an, an amount of kind of mental effort expended producing that character and producing that world or whatever to then have say your you know film or, or book comes out and then immediately other people can just jump on and, you know, so, for example, let's say J.K. Rowling publishes Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Immediately then, other people can produce completely uh, legitimate books that are sequels to, to Harry Potter set in the Wizarding Universe. And that J.K. Rowling ultimately gets no uh, compensation for the fact that she is the person who created this, this universe that other people are uh, kind of springboarding their ideas off. Do you think there is a... a uh, you know, I, I guess, how would you respond to people who would say that that's unfair to the artists who come up with these ideas and then don't actually, you know, uh, get any sense of like control over the universe after they've produced it? Well, in this particular scenario, uh, 
it's hard for me to imagine J.K. Rowling mm. not having any additional authority just for being the author yeah. of that original work. And and what you're talking about is kind of an argument against any kind of fan art. Uh, so mm. I think fan art, fan art is art, and uh, the artists that make it can do their best to exploit it however they they can. I'm pretty sure, though, that the the originator or the the primary, let's just say primary originator, because what what is and is not original becomes very fuzzy when you actually think about it, because mm. all the ideas in any work, including J.K. Rowling's work, those ideas also came from elsewhere. I mean, there is there is a there was a pre-existing body of literature about witches and wizards. There was a pre-existing pre-existing body of literature about schools and and school stories. Yeah, right? yeah. So so this is a mix. It's not wholly original. It it struck a chord. It became very successful, but we can't really say exactly why that particular mashup became successful when thousands mm. of other mashups didn't. But all creative work is derivative. At any rate, if you have a really popular work like J.K. Rowling's, and then you have a bunch of yeah, fan spinoffs, that those fan spinoffs actually increase the value of the so-called original, right? Because they they add to its prominence, and the creator of that gets benefits from that. Okay, uh, I guess actually the other example I can think of with regards to consumers, if somebody is a uh... Let's say they they produce a story or you know tell a story for a um, let's say a, a media form which doesn't necessarily have as much popular traction. So perhaps for example uh, a comic book. You know many people nowadays don't really read comic books, uh, and then somebody else takes that idea and turns it into a a film. You know it's it's pretty obvious that the film is going to bring in well, first of all, the most attention, but second of all, um, you know, probably the most money, even if it's just from people kind of taking an interest in the artist and therefore uh, giving more uh, commissions. Do you think it's possible that not having a copyright system could therefore lead to a situation where less kind of popular and um, uh, artistic mediums with less reach could become less popular with content producers because they're going to think, well, I want to you know, produce my stuff in the way that's going to get the most attention and the most eyeballs? Well, everybody does want to produce their stuff. Not everybody. Most people do want to produce yeah. their stuff in the way that gets the most attention and the most eyeballs. Uh, but we don't have the resources to all make mm. films, right? And yeah. when people talk about copyright, they seem to think that the, the copyright holder somehow holds like everything. But making a film is expensive. You have to pay a lot of people. Yeah, You have to manage a lot of stuff. It's it requires a lot of resources and one person may not have those. When I think about my own art and imagine something being uh, copied by someone that has far more resources and can do much more with it, you know, my first reaction, because I am part of this society, is to go like, oh, I want that. I want that stuff. Mm. But the other one is I don't have those resources, right? Like somebody else is actually putting work like their work is as legitimate as my work. They're putting work into exploiting <laughs> some of my work. And, you know, if if I deserve to be compensated for my work, they deserve to be compensated for their work just as yeah. much. Okay. Um, 
Hello everybody, this is just an interruption to remind you that this is uh, Radiolab 97.1 FM, the eclectic vanguard with me, Michael Brown, uh, and you, you've been listening to me talking to uh, Nina Pally. Uh, unfortunately, I would like to have some somewhat uh, casual radio chatter, uh, as I, I have been known to do in the past. Uh, in this case, I think one reason why it's quite difficult is because actually I think most of what I, I have to say about the subject was covered with... Um, Nina, uh, you know, it was a an interesting conversation where I think pretty much everything that well that I've ever thought about on the issue uh, was covered, and I also feel anything which uh, well, lots of things which I hadn't thought about on the issue were also covered. So, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, exactly original insights on on the topic. Uh, I do, and this might end up being a shorter show. To be honest, we'll we'll have to see how it uh, plays out because ultimately. Um, as as I said, if you've just tuned in, uh, I've been dealing with some anxiety issues this this past week, uh, which have not been great. And when I was actually giving this interview, I was very much in the the midst of uh, of my health anxiety. So I wasn't. I mean, I don't know if it comes across. That would be an interesting thing to uh, to think about. And I'm not sure how I'll, I'll feel uh, listening back to this. But it will be interesting to see whether or not. Um, it's very obvious that I was very anxious at the time. Um, unfortunately, it is something where I think that uh, you, you know it's it's just got to be got to be dealt with, and there's not really any easy solutions uh, because obviously, and I, I think I heard somebody point out with with health anxiety, the difference between that and other forms of anxiety is usually with other forms of anxiety, it's obvious you shouldn't really be worried, you know. Um, I've had issues with panic attacks before, and they're often brought on by um, very loud noises and, and very bright lights. And it's very obvious that loud noises and, and bright lights aren't really a reason you should be worried. You know, like uh, not obviously in your, if you're in the middle of a war zone, maybe. But you know, generally speaking, if you hear a loud noise, that's not a reason why you should start panicking. If you hear a you know see a big bright light, that's not a reason to start panicking. But it overstimulates you and that makes you anxious. Uh, but in that case, it, it's very obvious what the problem is. It, it's the anxiety. If you have social anxiety, as many people do, well, it's it's very obvious that standing in front of a crowd uh, and talking to people is is, is not going to kill you. It's uh, not even likely to to harm you. Uh, and obviously, whether that's you know, obviously there's other forms of social anxiety. People have you know varying degrees of social anxiety when it comes to uh, interacting with uh, service personnel, things like that. Uh, it's, you know, it's something where, again, if you have that form of anxiety, and I really don't have that particular form of anxiety, you you do know, well, this is all I have to worry about. The issue with, with health anxiety, what makes it, you know, I don't want to get into some kind of a, a discussion about who has who has things the worst, but certainly an issue about health anxiety, which makes it uh, much diff- more difficult to deal with, is that the thing that you are worried about is undeniably something which does warrant a genuine concern insofar as, you know, medical health issues exist and are actually dangerous. The issue of it is, of course, uh, retaining perspective on how how much risk or how much danger is actually present and therefore how much anxiety is actually warranted. Uh, but unfortunately, you can't really just sit there and go, well, the only thing I need to do is not worry about it because 
you know, if, if you've got some kind of symptom, uh, well, you should probably get that checked out. So yeah, it's it's uh, very unfortunate. And it's really the only thing I can talk about uh, on this, this show because it's something which is very much on my mind. Um, so with that said, I mean, it's, it's uh, slightly different from the topic of, uh, of copyright uh, law and whether or not it should exist. Uh, but perhaps if, well, I suppose it works quite well as a break then, you know, to, to break things up, uh, interrupt the discussion about copyright law with a discussion about uh, health anxiety. So with that said, I will just uh, continue the interview with, with Nina Pale. Uh It was, yeah, a, a very interesting interview and one which I did enjoy uh, giving, even while I was anxious, and it was one which I think, you know, very interesting points were made, so I'll let you continue with that. Again, this is uh, Radio Lab 97.1 FM, uh, the Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown. I, I'm interested, actually, in, so there is, I guess, an idea of uh, independent of copyright, particularly with regards to, I think, art, there's an aspect of originals are perceived to have a lot of value. Uh, do you, I, I suppose, because obviously um, somebody can, let's say, copy, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of other famous, uh, Guernica by mm-hmm. Pablo Picasso. Someone can copy it and you can say, well, they should be able to do that for free and distribute it for free. But there's, you know, the original thing mm-hmm. painted by Pablo Picasso is presumably going to be worth hundreds, well, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of, of dollars, uh, because of you know just the value of it in the culture, do you have any kind of? Does that enter into your conception of kind of copyright? The fact that originals a lot of the time are going to have extra value. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily suggesting it's a criticism. But I'm just wondering if it's something which you object to, or actually you think is just neutral, or maybe in something you think is a positive. That's a positive because what you've just hit on is the difference between rivalrous and anti-rivalrous goods. So the the actual property here is that painting. It's a mm. rivalrous good. There are no other ones. There can be rivalry over this specific thing. The more it's copied, the more value that rivalrous original actually has, right? Like Guernica wouldn't have any value if we didn't know what it was. Mm. This is true of all famous paintings that just go for absurd amounts of money, right? We read articles about it. There'll be a picture of Van Gogh's sunflowers. Yeah. And, you know, millions of dollars. And we're all like, woo, that's a valuable, famous painting. We've all seen pictures of it, right? Copies of it. It's yeah. famous. We know what it is. And the more famous it is, the more money it can fetch. Do you think there's a... I suppose, actually, what, what I'm curious about is, you know... Um, do you think it's legitimate for somebody to take a, a uh, work that would, has, you know, usually been copyrighted, a intellectual property, and display it in a certain way, and kind of charge people for the experience of of having it displayed in that way? The obvious example I'm referring to is uh, a cinema. So let's say I want to start a cinema, and I think I'm going to buy this, uh, you know, film reel or whatever, and I'm going to show it at my my theatre, and the the point is that I am charging people to to enter and i suppose they'd say you know i'm charging people for the the cinema experience do you think that is um perfectly legitimate yes i do and in fact what what you're paying for when you go to a cinema is is that space there's there's lots of rivalrous goods involved Mm. in a cinema right there's the building and everything that goes along with the building uh, it's expensive. I mean, there's a reason that cinemas are closing. They can't make money. 
Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that was that was something I thought about with Sita Sings the Blues, which was my first free culture foray. Uh, I made it so that, yes, cinemas could show it for free. They could download it. This was in 2008. They could download yeah. the master. And if they could, you know, make that projectable, they could project it. And did I oppose them making money off of it? No, because what they're making money off of is like the work that they're doing the building, the the maintenance, yeah. the staff, all of that, they have to be paid for that. And I, you know, my, my request is if they make money, please share it with me. But this is a voluntary system. In fact, don't get the idea that I'm anti-money. Mm. I'm not, I'm very, very pro-money. I'm very pro-monetizing. There's just so many ways to monetize that don't rely on copyright. And my objecting, my objection to copyright is that it is fundamentally censorship. I wanted uh, to talk about the film uh, Nosferatu. Okay. Nosferatu the Vampire. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yes, I am, yes. Right, right. With Max Schreck. The famous German seminal yeah. film. Uh, so that movie was in violation of copyright. Bram Stoker's widow sued... Okay the filmmakers and one and her remedy for Nosferatu violating the copyright of Dracula was to have all prints destroyed. So a court ordered all prints destroyed and all theaters all over the world were supposed to destroy their prints. And the only reason that we have Nosferatu is that they didn't. Some of them violated copyright and did not obey copyright and did not destroy the prints. So this story illustrates how copyright works. It gives you the right to mm -hmm. destroy copies if you're the copyright holder. And that is fundamentally censorship, mm. right? It's not a right to make money. You can make yeah. money without copyright and copyright by no means guarantees you any sort of income. All it is is the right if someone else is making copies you don't like, you can order those copies destroyed, just like you can have books banned or burned. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that's an interesting example. And I guess it does kind of lead on to, I guess, the more general question, which is, of course, I think we've kind of covered reasons why people might think copyright is a good idea, and, and you've responded to that. But I'm interested in, uh, and yeah, like I say, you've already kind of hinted it, but what would you say are, are the main reasons why copyright is actually a very uh, deleterious force uh, in society right now well in addition to being fun fundamentally a form of censorship it it fosters authoritarianism it fosters what's called permission culture which i really think is related to cancel culture i think cancel culture is an inevitable result of a few decades of copyright industry lobbying on the internet the internet which by design is free and roots around censorship, but these legacy industries have seen this as a threat and lobbied very, very hard in a cultural sense in schools to, to inculcate the idea that there's an authority behind every idea and that you need permission to create anything or to share anything every single time. And mm. I think that they've won. And I think that ties in really well to, uh, this idea that people are entitled to control culture and to control other people's expressions. Yeah, that yeah, that that is an interesting um, idea. And I was I was thinking uh, 
that I could see how there are political consequences. Do do you think it's possible that um, the idea of copyright kind of culturally is connected to these monopolistic uh, media and uh, social social media companies, and that there is kind of a a way in which almost I don't know, like an intersectional sense in which both of those two things are perhaps related and part of a similar problem so that you have you know these massive platforms like youtube and stuff yeah uh it was the copyright industries that successfully lobbied for all kinds of surveillance mechanisms Mm. to be part of all these internet platforms that was they were originally introduced to prevent piracy yeah uh yeah, that's uh, well. I can see that. Uh, and fact, on the subject of um, you know uh, laws that are considered authoritarian, uh, do you do you have? I imagine obviously when Article Thirteen was happening with regards to the EU, uh, that was that was a massive concern. What what would you say, realistically, um, you know, ha- have been the effects of Article Thirteen, or, or what is what is the issue that lies there? Oh, tell me what I'm American. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a dumb I, I wasn't, American. See, I wasn't sure if uh, I wasn't sure if you you would uh, you would know that because I know it was kind of on. Uh, basically, Article 13. The concern was that um, the the main thing, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on either. But uh, I remember people talking about how uh, memes, obviously, you know, memes being kind of like online image uh, images with which used copyrighted uh, material could be um, could be banned from from being censored and i think to be honest it was it was one of those examples that actually uh, uh it was a bit exaggerated uh but you know i was i was wondering if you had any kind of thoughts on on that but i suppose i, I could ask do you think there are you know similar similar pushes in in the us to get more you know, even more extreme copyright. Is copyright kind of ramping up as a phenomenon in the U.S. right now? Well, copyright has been both ramping up and its opposite for yeah. a few decades. Uh, the Internet has absolutely flummoxed the system. Copyright was tolerable in an age where all copies were rivalrous, right? Yeah. This goes back to the nature of property. Even though... Culture itself isn't property. Uh, Prior to the internet, copies were limited. They were much more resource intensive. And what the internet did was it made copies so low cost that the only cost of your copy really is the cost of maintaining your own machine. Yeah. And this just screwed up the model. Uh, sorry, what was the... Oh, Article 13. So you said Article 13, you you said that it bans memes containing copyrighted yeah, like, works yeah. from being censored, or it bans no, sorry, those no, memes? It, it bans those memes. Although, it bans again, those memes. No, I, that's, I that's, that's, that. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Of course that's ridiculous, because once something is published, it is public. Mm. Right? There's this issue, you've heard about the Dr. Seuss, they're calling it the Dr. Seuss cancellations, right? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Right. So one of the issues of that is to whom does Dr. Seuss belong? Right. Many of us were raised with his books. This was, you know, and when you're when you're a child, you don't have a choice as to what culture gets thrown at you. 
Uh, So this is this is part of us, right? This copyrighted material formed us and our ideas. And now you have the Dr. Seuss estate saying, well, we're not going to publish these. And because we're the estate that controls his works, no one else is going to publish them either. And and there's uproar over this because Dr. Seuss belongs yeah. to the public. It was published. Uh, and copyright terms are, of course, far too long. Copyright would be a lot more tolerable if the terms were still 14 years, as was the case initially, yeah. renewable for another 14. Uh, but no, it just goes on and on. And with these memes, you know, Star Wars belongs to everybody. Mm. It's mythology. And, you know, this is like the privatization of mythology and the giving, you know, small groups or individuals this authoritarian dictatorial control. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that that is interesting. So, yeah, basically it allows, um, I guess... Uh, copyright holders to be kind of moral arbiters uh, and you know social arbiters of how their content will be received um i mean there's there's so much in our culture that's not under copyright that's crucial to not be under copyright like shakespeare yeah like the bible and that like culture would cease to function if everything were controlled like that it's so important that we have things that are in the public domain and everything is eventually supposed to be in the public domain. When copyright laws were written, that was the understanding. And it was a really limited monopoly Mm. limited to 14 years. And that was prior to any internet, right? Those 14 years took into consideration how long it took to typeset and print and distribute a book before there were trains you know, yeah. uh, so it might have taken a good seven years to actually distribute that book. And now we have the Internet where you can publish with the press of a button. So if anything, copyright terms should be much shorter. But yeah. Longer. Well, well, also, the economy is, is bigger now, because I would assume, I mean, the, the point of copyright, and I would suggest probably the thing that people find very kind of sympathetic about copyright is it's supposed to allow the original author some time to profit off their own work before other people can either just you know make their own work based on it or or share it um that's actually not the that's not the point of copyright the point of copyright has always been censorship and if you read about the history of copyright that becomes really clear it began with the statute of anne which was about the suppression of seditious materials okay and there was this uh not a guild the company of stationers uh, yeah. So so by suppressing, by creating this system of suppressing seditious materials, it created a monopoly. And then uh, when England was ready to get rid of this system, the monopoly was already there. And of course, monopolies have power. And yeah. the, they didn't want to lose their monopoly power. So they came up with this other reason, like, oh, it protects the authors. And from the very beginning, there were authors and others saying, no, it doesn't protect authors. This is mm. just a monopoly. And that's it's been the case ever since it's very dangerous to create artificial monopolies. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, um, it's interesting. I suppose, I guess the kind of other, other question is obviously this is all talking about ideals and how, you know, you, you object copyright and think it should be done away with and how that'd be better. What is, I guess the, the kind of practical goals for you 
as an anti-copyright activist do you uh, and also i guess for society in general you know practicals about how to bring this about but so i guess kind of maybe maybe two questions and maybe take it one at a time but the first question being for you as just an activist who is talking about this what is is your kind of game plan for transforming your you know deeply held beliefs on this subject into you know a political movement that will go on to affect actual policy well i free all my work i mean the best activism i can do is just to put it out there and to show people how well it's working for me. I mean, I made more money freeing Sita Sings the Blues than I had ever made before in my life and and that I ever would have had I not freed it. I try to show people that yes, you know, money comes from other sources. Uh, in terms of affecting policy, it's pretty unlikely that I will affect policy, but having this position in the discussion, I think helps more moderate people. I think yeah. I think all sane people support some kind of copyright reform. And I'm fine being the wacky outlier that Yeah. But it it helps people discuss these ideas and you know, like we could reduce copyright terms, right? We could yeah. tax intellectual property. That would be great. Like if you really think it's property, tax it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's interesting, uh, and I guess that kind of gets to the other question, which is obviously, um, and I suppose this is is a bit more simple than it would be for other kind of you know ideologies. Uh, but how, I mean, with in the case of uh, if the government, let's imagine there was a government and it said, you know, uh, Nina Paley is right about everything uh, regarding copyright. Um, is it just as simple as them abolishing copyright laws, or? Uh, well, I guess kind of two questions would be one, do you think there has to be a societal change or do you think actually the societal change comes after the uh, abolition of copyright laws? Uh, and the other thing I'm wondering is, it, surely for just one individual country to do this, there are issues with um, like in the international sphere. Like I would think there's, you know, the, I don't know, let's say Moldova can't make it so any Moldovan can go out and just make a Star Wars film, I would think because I would imagine that the United States has the power to stop that. So, you know, I'm quite interested in that. What is the international uh, ramifications potentially of a country getting rid of their copyright system? Well, they have treaties, right? So yeah. they would have to rethink their treaties if a, if a country wanted to be a, a free culture haven, for example. There was a brief period of time where um, Iceland was talking about it, and I was mm. like, oh, that would be so great. It would attract so many artists. You know, like I would premiere all my films in that country. I would make my films in that country. There would be so much creative work happening in that country because what copyright does functionally is it stifles artists, especially artists with very few resources, right? Like these, these big production companies, they can license whatever they want. In fact, many of the big production companies, you know, they're, they're part of these huge corporations like Sony that already own all the heritage. Yeah. So they just license it from themselves. And what it effectively does is lock out uh, small people. But a, a, a free culture haven would allow all these people to produce works there, right? Without being afraid of being fined or jailed. Artists are really anxious right now. The main thing that they're wondering is, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? And it's hugely stifling of creativity. Mm. 
Yeah, that's, uh, that is interesting. Um, well, I suppose that's kind of all the questions I had, but do you have any kind of final thoughts on the, on the matter? Well, I wanted to talk about a couple other things. I said commissions yes. was a way to monetize culture. And it's the main way it is done. Another way is sponsorships. Really, this is how most artists make money. If you have artist yeah. friends and you ask them where most of their income comes from, it's probably not copyright-based royalties. Yeah. Uh, and also you were talking about people that finance movies, that they're motivated by profit. In my experience, people that finance movies are, they're propagandists. Mm, and okay. uh, there are piles of money available for filmmakers to put forth some ideology or other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that is interesting. And obviously, I do know that the CIA has had some influence in the big film industries and things like that. Um, okay, uh, well, is, is, that, uh, is that everything? I think so. I think you can get a show out of that. Yeah, all right. Uh, well, you can give a, a shout out to all your kind of social media and stuff, I think. I will. Let me know when it's online and I'll share a link and maybe someone will download it without your permission and you'll feel <laughs> the money flying out of your wallet. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very, um, very valuable show. All right. Thank you, Nina Paley. That was, that was really interesting. Honestly. Yeah, thank yeah, you. I'm, I'm sorry that um, I'm sorry that I this had to be a call at a time when I was quite um, preoccupied mentally with uh, the situation. Basically, I'm uh, yeah I'm going to go to the uh, doctors in yeah half an hour, and yeah it's either I mean I tell you what if I was ever going to be if I was ever going to be an activist or anything it would probably be um, health anxiety uh, because that is something which really does affect me a lot. Uh, so I'll stop recording. Uh, and that was Nina Pally. You can check out her work at blog.ninapally.com. And you can also find her on Twitter at Nina Pally. Again, you know, N-I-N-A-P-A-L-E-Y. Uh, she is an animator. She is a cartoonist. She obviously is um, opposed to copyright law, which is um, a very, well, you've, you've heard the reasons for that. And you can make a decision yourself. Personally, I, I don't know what side I, I fall down on it as an issue. I think uh, there are not only legitimate arguments on both sides whether or not it should be a, a thing that people are concerned about, but also, of course, um, whether or not uh, it's it's something that matters as, as much. You know, Maybe it's, it's something where you might not be concerned about it, and I can understand why lots of people who perhaps are not involved in the creative arts and things like that, it's not going to be an issue for them, but I'm sure you... Uh, were enjoyed listening to Nina Pally's opinion as somebody who who does produce content uh, for a living and believes that that content should not be protected by something like copyright law. Um, so yeah, it was very interesting. Like I say, you can check out all of her stuff. You can also, uh, by the way, check out the Eclectic Vanguard stuff. Um, if you go onto YouTube, uh, if you type in Eclectic Vanguard, I believe will come up. And also on Twitter, you can find us at Eclectic Van, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, so that's on Twitter and, uh, follow and, uh, you know, get involved if, if you like. So with all that said, uh, I hope, I hope you do all of that. And I hope next week, I mean, I, I've never been high energy because I don't think the show requires, you know, the heights of high energy. Uh, but I do think that, um, I should be able to be slightly more upbeat in the next episode. And I hope that you will be able to um, 
enjoy the next episode have uh well that we can all have some fun with regards to it and ultimately uh that you enjoy the discussions that I will continue to uh, bring to you. So with that said, I think we are almost certainly going to be wrapping up uh, earlier than we ordinarily would. Uh, I guess this has been a shorter show than usual, and unfortunately it's just because of uh, you know mental health issues which, which can't be avoided. Um, but yeah, I'll, uh, I will now ri- ring off, ring off, uh, <laughs> sign off, uh, and again remind you that this is the uh, Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown, on Radio Lab 97.1 FM. Again, sorry for the slightly shorter show, uh, but I'm sure you will enjoy being able to get back to whatever else you were doing with your evening slightly earlier. Uh, bye.